You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen. I invite you to take a seat this morning and uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. That is where we're going to be today. Uh, Second last Old Testament prophecies, Zechariah, Malachi, then the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Zechariah. As you get there, I just want to say good morning and uh, welcome here. We're honored to be able to worship the Lord together. If you're here in this place, privileged to have uh, last Sunday with you. If you're at home, I wish you were here. Wish we could see you one more time, uh, but trust in the Lord with uh, his sovereignty and all of these things. Uh, I want to say this before we get into the text today. Thank you very much for the uh, kind words from the elders, from um, some of you in your uh, videos, some of you have given us over the past six weeks. I assure you, I am not nearly as good as everybody says I am, but I appreciate it nonetheless. God has been good to us, hasn't he? I can't believe it. God has been so good to us. I can believe it, but my little faith, and I'm going to be part of this church family for nine years, ten years of part of the planning process, has been an honor, a joy, and a privilege. And to be your pastor has been uh, one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. And so thank you for allowing me that privilege and for being uh, our congregation and our family and our friends. Um, definitely a surreal day. There's more to come. I'm going to stay at the end, but I don't want to distract from Jesus and God and his word right now. So We'll leave that to the end. Uh, Everyone in Zechariah now? Everyone in Zechariah? Awesome. Let's uh, get into it. Uh, This is uh, quite an interesting book, to be honest. It's uh, saved the best for last. It's a long book, one of the longest minor prophets. And uh, and this is pretty complex. And so uh, I'm not going to get into every nuance and every little uh, tit and tattle of what is going on in this text. But I want to give you like a Costco sampler today. Just a Costco sampler so that you can taste it and be like, Mmm, I want more of that. I want to go home and study that. And so that's my goal today. And so as we look at Zechariah, let's first understand who this prophet is. Uh, Zechariah is quite probably a PK, not a pastor's kid, but a priest's kid. Dad probably died early, uh, raised by his grandfather, as we're going to learn in the introduction here, uh, but one who is given the priestly name from his, uh, from his uh, lineage to then lead the family in a spiritual way. And the name Zechariah means this, it means God remembers Actually, we chose our son's, Zach, son's name Zachary, derivative of Zachariah. God remembers and also means the Lord is renowned. In other words, God remembers his people. God's the father who has a picture of his people on his cell phone screensaver and he holds it close to his heart. He remembers his people and his promises to his people. But ultimately, ultimately, his Passion is for his name to reign supreme over all the earth. And so God remembers Zechariah, or the Lord is renowned, is so aptly attributed to this name, to the one who wrote this book. Uh, Zechariah, you have to understand, is a teammate of Haggai. And so all the minor prophets were like, where do they all fit in the big picture? Zechariah and Haggai are kind of, they're overlapping. They weren't like running side by side, arms linked, but they were overlapping. And so this is important because so important was this moment in the church history and the history of God's people that he actually didn't send one prophet, he sent two prophets to kind of say the same things but in different ways to really make an impact on the people. 
Ever been in church before and you heard a sermon and it rattled your soul to be like, oh my goodness, I went to church today, but God actually spoke. Ever happened to you? And then you go home to get in your car and you turn on the radio and whoever's preaching on the radio says the exact same thing, but in a different way. Or expands upon the same thing and you're like, oh my goodness, what is going on? God is speaking. That was sort of like Haggai and Zechariah you know, to the people. They came with a one-two punch, uh, both really saying this, let's make... God great again. Forget about America or Canada being great. Forget about any person being great. Forget about Zerubbabel or Joshua being great. Let's make God great again. And so they're part of the 50,000 Jews returning to the land, and in unison they said this word, restoration. You know, your mom and your dad sometimes say the same thing at the same time when you're kids, and you're like, whoa, that was weird. Like, restoration is what they're talking about. And so rebuild the temple. Uh, Haggai was more of the locker room guy who's coming to pump them up. Like, hey, hey guys, you're missing it. Let's go. Let's go to the future glory. Uh, Zechariah is more the prophet who comes in. He's more the pastoral prophet, more like a sermon. He more gets their, Haggai was to get the building rebuilt. Yeah, Zechariah's about that. But more than that, he wants the temple of God's people within to be rebuilt. And so he brings a spiritual awareness to this. And his message is, Right to the heart. Repent, return, and restore. He doesn't get to restore. Repent, return, and restore. He's the prophet of the new day or new kingdom, ultimately pointing us to the messianic age. And so if you open the book of Zechariah, any of you probably read it before you realize, man, this is, this is a, a deep book. It's a little bit apocalyptic. It's got vivid imagery and wild dreams and deep theologies. Pretty profound. It's hard to understand. It's a little bit like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation. But it is so filled with meaning for our souls, a meaning that we cannot miss. Here's what Zechariah really is. It's eight visions, four messages, and two oracles all packed into 14 chapters. Eight visions, four messages, two oracles, two halves to the book, chapters 1 to 8 and 9 to 14. Chapters 1 to 8 contain really the eight visions and four messages. Chapters 9 to 14, the final two oracles. And here's the deal, here's the deal. They all point to the reality of one king on one throne accomplishing one purpose of exalting his one son and blessing his only children. Packed with themes like repentance and running to the Lord. It's packed with themes like God judges sin. Zechariah can be seen as a warning label for life. Use your life as God designed it, you'll find blessings. Use your life as you think it should go, you'll find, or misuse it, you'll find curses or God's wrath. There's an urgency to invest in God's life investment plan for you, which is his people and his church. It's filled with God's love for his own, blessing of, Revel of Jerusalem and the centrality of the temple, pouring out of God's spirit and ultimately triumph. This is what this book is about. God always wins. God always wins. God always wins. It's awesome. Are you ready? Let's go. Write this down in your notes. Write this down in your notes, praying that this would inspire confidence in God, cause you to fully invest in God's kingdom and look expectantly for what God has in store. Here's what you can write first in your notes. God assures his children of a glorious future. God assures his children of a glorious future. 
First part of this, chapters one, chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, is actually before he gets to the glorious future. He says, one more time, one more time, repent and return. Like, hey, hey, God's up there through his prophet saying, Red Rover, Red Rover, I call the wanderer over. I call the rebel over. Uh, I call you to repent, verse 3 of chapter 1. I'm going to go through this. Keep your Bibles open. I'm going to highlight some verses here. You can just circle them as we go. Chapter 1, verse 3, quit wasting your life. Return to me, and I will return to you. Like, come on, get it together. Anyone here today maybe need that message one more time? I've preached it over and over in nine years, but get it together. Like, feeling a little bit far away from God, feeling about maybe like God, it's watching on screen right now or watching here, but it's just not, I'm missing something. Here's the message. You're missing something about God. It's not because God is different. It's this. We've moved away. Repent and come back. God's waiting for us. And when we do, he promises us assurance of a glorious future. The eight visions we're going to study quickly here is uh, really one vision, uh, one night in the life of Zechariah, February 15th, 1560. It's all in the text. Don't you love how God's like, oh no, it didn't just happen. Here's the day it happened. Sometimes people think these visions are allegory or mythology, but they're actual history. These are things that God gave, dreams that God gave Zechariah to tell his people uh, that he, they were going to have guaranteed success as they rebuilt the temple. Remember Haggai last week, and they were getting all, they're going, they got all discouraged, and God's like, don't worry, don't worry. Now with Zechariah, you will build, and I will make you succeed. You don't have to succeed, just start building. It will succeed. You know, those athletes that make the guaranteed wins, you know, the guaranteed win, they we're going to win this game. They can't do that. God, when he says guaranteed win, guess what? It's a guaranteed win. Here's the eight visions quickly. Let me unpack them for you in like three sentences. Again, I, I want to go into all, every one of these in detail, but I just can't. It'll be here till eight o'clock tonight. It's okay. All right. So here we go. The man among the myrtle trees, chapter one, verses seven to 17. You can follow along. You'll see this, a vision of a horseman. Here's the bottom line of this one. God has a righteous anger against the nations, yet abundant blessing for his own. In this vision, we see a man riding a red horse with a cavalry behind him of colorful horses, red, brown, and white. And God's appointed to gallop around and can take stock over the whole earth. And as they, as they gallop, they find this. They find there's peace everywhere, but in Jerusalem and Judah, they are in ruins. And God's at the top going like, hey, something's wrong with this picture. You know, when you look at the world, you're like, something's just not right. That's what God's saying. Everything else is peaceful. Something's just not right. So guess what? I'm going to reverse this. I'm going to correct this. I'm going to reestablish my temple, and I'm going to bring prosperity and blessing back to the rightful people that deserve it, my people. Second vision, the four horns and the four craftsmen, chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. Here's the deal. God's going to avenge those that oppose his children. God doesn't just sit up in the sky going, oh, you're going to oppose my children? Well, that's too bad. Like, you, know, hey, you come against my own. I'm coming against you. You don't mess with my people. You don't mess with my children. And so God's not just angry at the opposing nations. Actually, he's raising up his own to be stronger than the opposing nations. And they're going to crush them, probably talking about here, probably talking about here nations like um, Babylon and Egypt and Assyria and Assyria. And so God's kind of like sitting there... Uh, Watching his team get a little bit demolished right now, but he knows all along he's got a secret weapon on his bench like the hockey coach. Yeah, keep throwing us around. My, my enforcer's right here, and he's tougher than all of you, so keep going, keep going, because I'm going to unleash him any moment now. And then you better watch out. The third one, the surveyor with a measuring line, is basically saying this. God's going to expand the boundaries of his people. 
Get the surveyors out there. They're measuring Jerusalem. You know what they're finding? The walls are too small for what God wants to do. Let's, let's take down those walls. Let's buy a bigger plot of land because God is going to do something in this place that's going to be bigger than you can handle. And he's going to actually ultimately come back to this place and he's going to build an oval office for himself and his people, it says in this text, I love this, his people will not just be his people, they'll be the apple of his eye. That's what God's people are to him. They'll be the apple of his eye. And so this measuring line, God's going to come back and establish himself. And this is an encouragement for the undeserving. Then my favorite chapter of this is chapter 3. Favorite chapter of Zechariah, chapter 3. The cleansing and crowning of Joshua, the high priest. Here's what God's saying here. God's going to clean up his nation and cause him to be godly again. We see Joshua with filthy clothes on serving God in his temple with the accuser, Satan. He stinks. He shouldn't be a priest. He stinks. And he's just doing his thing. And as Satan's accusing, Joshua does nothing. His filthy clothes just show how inadequate and incapable he was to actually be a priest on his own. It shows the reality of the people around him. They were dirty. They were stained with sin. And as Satan's opposing them, don't believe these blessings. You know, don't have to listen to God. He doesn't love you. God speaks. Joshua didn't speak. He's kept doing what he's doing. God speaks and shuts up Satan and actually took off Joshua's dirty clothes and put on white robes of righteousness. It's the gospel right here in Zechariah chapter 3. Read it this afternoon. It's awesome. Showing, God showing his people that God is going to not just rebuke Satan, but he's going to give us righteousness and he's going to give every believer and every member of his family uh, the garments of cleansing that only he can do. God blesses through his grace, Zechariah 3, 6 and 7, that we might then live in the newness of life he has given us to walk in his ways, to keep his requirements, to govern according to his desires, to have peace and a place. That's chapter 3. God's going to cleanse his people and make them fully his again. The next vision, the gold lampstand and the two olive trees, chapter 4, is simply this. God's children will light up the earth as glory as their ultimate Messiah, the king priest. So it's a golden lampstand with seven candles around this, this vat of oil on top with two olive trees and the the the, the, the the seven candles that are shining brightly representing all of God's people from all ages, God's children. They're going to be the light to the world, but the oil is this Holy Spirit being poured upon them to make it happen. And the two olive trees, there's Zerubbabel and Joshua, he's affirming them in their leadership. Hey, this is going to happen. You're going to shine brightly. I'm going to pour my spirit upon you. And one of my favorite verses in this text, Zechariah 4, 6, that they're going to accomplish all this light shining for the glory of God, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You think the Holy Spirit wasn't present in the Old Testament? Look again. God's anointing for the task at hand. And then the last three visions are God taking care of business with sin. Don't think Zechariah is like the other prophets. doesn't point out sin and that God's going to deal with sin both outside his people but also inside. This, this flying scroll in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, God's going to judge his own people with severity and totality. Notice that God's going to judge whose people? His own people. It's going to cause some people to gulp maybe here this morning with his severity and totality. He's a flying scroll. Ever been to the beach in the United States and those Geico planes with Geico banners go over, right? And this is a flying scroll that's 30 feet, 30 feet long by 15 feet high. It doesn't say Geico. Here's what it says. Judgment. Can you imagine being on the beach? Oh, it's such a nice sunny. Oh, my goodness. Judgment. 
5 verse 3, there's a curse that's going to fall on the land for all the lying tongues and stealing tongues, just a representative of all the sin that's going on. And what God's going to do is come and wash out every lying mouth and slap the fingers of every thieving person, again, symbolic of all sin, and he's going to put all those in the corner that break his covenant. Next vision, chapters 5, verses 5 to 11, the woman in a basket. God's going to forever eradicate Israel's sin and rebellion from the land. Here's a vision that's pretty interesting to understand. It's a woman called wickedness in a basket with two women with wings flying her away from Israel to Babylon. She keeps bringing her head up to see what's going on. They keep slapping it back down. And, and really what it is is God's saying, I'm going to take the sin of this nation and they're going to crush that ugly head once and for all. We're going to take it back to Babylon and leave it there so we're going to have final judgment. The sin that he's talking about most probably is idolatry. The sin of putting anything above God, but he's going to do this. Psalm 103 is going to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west by his great mercy. Last one here is four chariots, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. God will bring justice to his people by judging the nation. So four chariots, red, black, white, and dappled from two bronze mountains. They're going to head everywhere but east, specifically to the north, to grab Babylon. And is God judging the, is the Gentile nations? And at the end of chapter 6, the last verses are not a vision. It's Joshua being crowned with silver and gold, brought from Babylon. Notice this. He's going to do all these things. He's going to not just squash the enemy. He's going to pilfer the enemy, too. He's going to... Put the gold and silver brought from Babylon onto Joshua and put the crown in the temple as a commemoration of the greatest high priest to ever come, Jesus Christ. Joshua, God is my salvation. Jesus, Yeshua, to deliver or rescue. It all comes down to what it always comes down to in the word. What is it? Jesus Christ. Awesome. Fly by. You with me still? Worth studying on your own. I just want to stop and pause and breathe for a minute and let you sort of comprehend all that I just said, the eight visions of Zechariah. Think of this, think of this. Wow, 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 is God awesome. Before we move on and say, hey, that's a cool vision for Zechariah, don't think that for any moment here that God doesn't give these visions for not just the people then, but for us here today, right now. There's life, life applications in all of these visions. For who? Israel. For who? For my neighbor. For who? For me. Here it is. Just some life applications for this. As I read this this week over and over, I was being stirred with an urgency. I was being stirred with a greater urgency, a greater desire to, to simply be on Jesus' side. Don't you notice in here the, the, the reality of these eight visions? Here's the, here's the truth. If you're on God's side, you have blessing. God's blessing pours upon you like a sun shower on a hot summer day. You're out there in a sweaty hot day. If only I could get some, some refreshment in the, in the still sunny, but the heavens open up, the rain flows. That's the reality for God's people, man. If you're on God's side, guess what? God's blessing showers upon you. But if you're not on God's side, the opposite is true. Judgment is going to be fast and furious like a hot summer lightning strike. And there's only two sides in the Bible. There's only two sides in the Bible. You're either on Jesus' team or you're not. 
You're either for him or you're against him. You can't be for the Habs and the Leafs, as I'm learning it more and more again as we move to Montreal. You can't be for the Habs and the Leafs at the same time. you got to pick one. Maybe some of you here today have been listening to these sermons for maybe all summer, maybe three years now or four years now, and you've never made that choice. You're hearing it all. You know there's God's blessing. You know there's God's wrath. But you've never made that choice. I need to be on God's side. I want the blessing side, not the cursing side. I'm tired of doing things my own way. I'm tired of being stuck in my own sin. Today's the day maybe for repentance as, as Zechariah called the people to repent. Maybe today, this is your simple day to say, you know what, God, I am done writing. I am done fighting. I want to repent and finally be on your side that I can have the warm summer showers instead of the lightning strikes in my future. If that's you today, it's a simple prayer. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Come and rescue me and bring me to your side. Jesus, I want to be the apple of your eye. He will do that. For those of us who are Christians, here's the reality of this today. Here's the reality of this. We can just bask in the reality of knowing this, that we are on the winning team. This is what Jesus tell, this is what God's telling Zechariah. Just build the temple. You're going to win. You're gonna, if we're on God's side, we are going to win. Amen. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how many people oppose us, if God is for us, who can possibly be against us. It feels with an urgency simply to be be on God's side and to stay there and to never stray from there and know that God is faithful and I will be unfaithful, but God will keep me there. Here's the second thing that really reminds us that we need to be cleansed of our sin. We need to be cleansed of our sin. Justification through faith and sanctification through the Spirit. This is the gospel. We see it so clearly throughout the whole eight visions. The gospel is this, that God saves us from our sin and loves us far too much to leave us there. He wants to cleanse us completely, slowly, day by day as we walk with him from our sin. He wants to sanctify us or progressively make us more like Jesus Christ. He wants to do in our lives what he did in Joshua's life. Take our grubbies off that oftentimes we walk around with and we get cleaned up for Sunday, but the rest of the week we're just wearing our spiritual grubbies, our Saturday clothes, our lawn care clothes, and actually put on the robes of righteousness in our souls that we can wear every single day and get us ready for the greatest feast that's ever going to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The struggle is that so often you and I, we want justification, but we really struggle with the sanctification. This is reminding us, hey, the sanctification is going to be hard, it's going to be fight, but it is part of God's plan for your life, and it's worth it. And no longer ought we as believers to dabble in our sin or allow complacency to reign in our hearts, to be okay with those little roots of bitterness, The jealousy, the rage, the impatience, do not be okay with that, but ask God, God, cleanse me from my sin and make me look more like Jesus. When was the last time you prayed that prayer? I want to be clean, God. I'm tired of the struggle. I'm tired of the fight. I can't do it. I want you to come and make me clean and make me righteous. Here's the third thing that urges us to do before we surrender to the Holy Spirit's power. God has called us as a church 
God has called you as individuals to be a part of building God's kingdom and letting his light shine through you. The struggle is we have all our opinions and all our ideas and all our agendas and even all of our own strength that we think we're going to bring to the table. But God says clearly in Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my, by my spirit. And the only way we get the spirit of God to accomplish his purpose and his will for our lives is we surrender ourselves and say, God, I'm done with me. And I want to be fully into you. So many people here I find in North America have all these dreams and desires of what they're going to do and be for the Lord. And the one thing they've never done or set out to do in their relationship with God is simply surrender to the Spirit of God to let Him do in you and through you whatever He desires to do in you and through you. So we strive and we fight and we aim and we pursue and We get nowhere. You know why? Because it's not by our might or by our power. It's by the Spirit of God. I read that this week, and I'm like, God, I want that to be me. Surrendered. I want that to be this church as we move forward. Surrendered to whatever, God, you want to do. All in, God, united by the Holy Spirit and and saying, God, yes, come and fall on us again and, and cause us to do greater things for the kingdom than we've seen thus far, but by your Spirit, not by mine. Last thing it gives us urgency to do is anticipate a bright future. This is all these visions are God saying, guys, don't lose heart. Don't fear. Don't give in to anxiety, which we're all prone to do. But instead, instead, don't see the compass half empty, but instead know this, that God is with me and God is for me. His assurance will carry me on his back. His blessings will carry me like a riptide towards what he wants. And, and, I can live like God has something better for me down the road. Isn't it easy to look at circumstances and say there's nothing beyond, there's nothing beyond. I found myself there for sure in the last while. But here's what God says. Just work. Just build the temple. I'll complete it. I'll finish it. I'll make it look like I want to make it. You just have to be willing to surrender and then trust and believe. Trust and believe that a bright future awaits us. Let's be honest, how many of us have tried to like make ourselves into what we think we should be? I'm going to be the, the, the man of this or the woman of this. And here's, here's this reminding us, our brightest future looks forward to and God says, no, let me make you the man of God and the woman of God I want to make you. I'm going to do something in you and through you that you can't imagine. So get rid of all the things that you think you want you should and look to me and I will make your future brighter than you could have ever made it yourself in greater ways. Victories and defeats. The eight visions show us this. God wins. It's an encouraging passage. It's a bit of a pump-me-up passage for the people who are on God's side, not so much for those who aren't. But after the eight visions, God gives here four messages in chapter 7, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 23. And as God gives them this hopeful optimism for the future. He also says this, that he desires us to experience this, experience a true and pure religion in this. Okay, guys, here's the, here's the picture. We're going to build this temple. It's going to be great. But, but as you build the temple, don't forget to build up inside your own spiritual temple. So God gives some ex- exhortations to righteousness. It's not like all a rah, rah, rah. It's like, hey, rah, rah, rah. But guess what? I have some instructions for you as you go all revolving around right living 
and living in the righteousness that we know he has put upon us. And simply this, I think, in the next, this little section here, God is saying this, out with rituals and in with real living relationships with God. Look at the little subtitle here in chapter 7, a call for justice and mercy. He gives exact time of when it is. And, and then Zechariah jumps right into an exhortation, like, hey, it's going to be great, guys, but it's only going to be great if, here's the first if, you leave formalism behind. Look at verses 5 and 6 here. Verse chapter 7, you can circle these. Really what, what's happening in this context is the Jewish people, God's people, were fasting. You know, God said to fast one day a year. That was a day of atonement, and, and that was only a partial day of a fast. And yet they had all these other fasts around. Ever since they went into Babylon, they had all these, these days of fasting. They had these days of fasting. They think they're going to be more spiritual and, and can't forget their mistakes and maybe paying some, pen, some penitence before God. And so all these fasts, and God's like, hey, hey, you got all these fasts. You're also spiritual, but guess what? You're doing the fast for you and not for me. All these things to make you feel good about yourself and prop you up and even came to the, the, the feasts and the feasts were so good and they're such a spiritual meaning and yet the feasts for the Israelites have become just about filling their faces and having dances and all kinds of joy. They, here's the deal. And they're fasting in their feasts. You know what they missed out on? Exalting God. Their religion had become all about themselves instead of actually exalting God. So what God tells them in this first little bit here is God cares less about religious activity if it's not for him and through him and by him. More on that in a second. Second message in here is live for God's mercy and justice. Chapter 7, verse 8 to 8, 18. This is a big portion of this. Verse 3. Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. What God's saying to them is as you Get into my plan as you build this temple. Don't forget to make me the most meaningful part of all your religious practices. None of that emptiness anymore. Fullness of my presence and the seeking the glory of my face. But also this, remember, remember to just act and speak what is true and for the good of others. And really what he's saying is lift up the low and fight for justice and equality. Stop climbing for the top and fight, basically is what he's saying, for those on the bottom. This is true in pure religion. It's not formalism. It's not fighting for my own rights. It's fighting for the rights of others. In other words, do what you can to promote God, his person, and his values in the world. Just like today, they had all these struggles going on. There was religious oppression and probably racial oppression and, and people needing advocacy, maybe, maybe the unborn back then and um, special needs and orphans and widows, for sure. There's needs everywhere. And what God is saying is don't just do your thing and forget about the needs uh, out there. God's heart is for needs out there as well as in here. Said it before, you can't sit in our I said it before, you can't we can't sit in our holy huddle and expect the world to change. He's saying, get out there and do something. Not all do the same thing. So we get into that plan too, right? Well, this is on my heart, so it's gotta be on your heart too. He's no, no, get out there and do something, even if it's not the same thing, do something for the glory of God. Oppression and marginalized is our concern as believers. It cannot not be our concern. Double negative there, never said that in a sermon, but I just did. 
Preach the gospel. Be a difference maker. God, your will on earth be done through our lives, through our church. That's our mission outside the church. Chapter 8, verses 9 to 13 is to also lean into God's calling inside the church. Restore the temple. Haggai, Zechariah, restore the temple, restore the temple, engage in the body and build up the work of God. Don't just focus on injustices, build up the body of God. Don't neglect working together to accomplish much for the Lord. As we've always said, stronger together and apart. Zechariah reminds the people of this, we're reminded of it again today. Don't forget we're stronger together than ever apart. And you can circle these verses in chapter 8, verse 9. Let your hands be strong. Verse 12, live in peace. Such a good word for us today, hey? Live in peace, church. Inside the church, live in peace. You know what I'm talking about here. Bear fruit together. Verse 13, fear not and be strong. And what he's really calling the church to is, hey, let's, let's get in the boat and let's start rowing together. Ever seen a rowing team where they're all rowing independently? That's going to go where? Nowhere. Nowhere. In unison. It's not a skipper. What's it called, the guy in a rowing? Ken, what's the guy in the rowing thing called? What is it? That's it, whatever he said. Can't hear him with his mask on. The guy in the front calling the signals. Coxie, that's it. Start rowing in unison. Not for your glory, but for the glory of God. Lean into God's calling. And the last one here is look forward to God's favor. Chapter 8, verses 14 to 19. He's just promising this. There's a day of rejoicing coming. There's going to be gladness and cheerful feasts. They're going to be the norm. And people from all nations are going to flock. People from all nations are going to flock and seek his favor. He's really talking revival. He says, long for these days. Pray for these days. Expect these days. Renewal days are ahead. He's really saying, this is what true religion really is. It's a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. It's, it's advocating for those outside with justice and rightness. It's coming in and building the church together and, and building God's kingdom together and looking forward to ultimately the day where the revival will actually be made sight. Don't quit praying for revival and looking forward to that day. It's true religion. In the midst of all the busyness, in the midst of all the plans, in the midst of all that you're doing for God, don't forget the true religion in God. Here's what Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13 says. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? This is true religion right here. What does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear him, to walk in his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. It's really an exhortation in the middle of an Old Testament prophet, simply this, to live out real Christianity. Just to live out real Christianity. Isn't it true we've somehow come to relegate Christianity as the Bible studies, the theological discussions, the comfortable things we like to do for the Lord or maybe not like to do for the Lord. and Yet real Christianity is not sitting on the couch. It's not just avoiding sin. If that was the case, a goldfish would be a great Christian. 
It's actually pursuing God to love him and know him and make all your religious activity meaningful, centered on Jesus Christ. The temple's going to be the center, so Jesus Christ is going to be the center. It's actually caring about those around you and, and loving them and wanting to do something about the plight of others and not just care about your own plight. It, it's about, man, I want to serve in the church. I want to be a part of God's army doing something for his kingdom. It's I want to long for better days. I don't want to think about this day all the time, what I can accomplish now. I want to long for better days when Jesus is going to come and, and on earth, even before he comes, start revivals and see God activity again. This is true Christianity, not what most of North America says by coming into church once a week and sitting in our seats and getting an inspirational message and going home like nothing ever happened and having a few spiritual discussions and coming back and do it again the next week. That's empty religion. True religion is mind-permeating, soul-stirring, life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ and being difference-makers for his kingdom. This is who believers are and what they really do. Ducks swim, frogs leap, dogs bark, Jesus followers love and stand and serve and long for God. We don't come to church so that other people can think we're good people. We come because we want to grow in God. We don't read the Bible so we can feel good about ourselves and get some more self-esteem. We read the Bible so that we can, can, can become like Jesus Christ. We don't serve so that people can see how, how awesome we are and exalt how great we are. We serve so we can exalt Jesus together. We don't, we don't get out there into justice causes so others can maybe nominate us for citizen of the year. We, we get into justice causes because we want God's name to be made great again. And the actual evidence of our Christianity, according to Zechariah, is really the heart by which we do all these things. Are we doing it for the Lord? Or are we doing it for us? True Christians are seen as much as they're heard. I thought about this. I thought about this. If some of these things are marks of true Christians, and the government in Canada which very well could happen someday, comes along and says, you know, it's not going to be okay to be a Christian anymore. And some official comes and knocks on your door and arrests you for being a Christian. Yet the marks of a true Christian, marks of an inward change, are some of these outward things that we're seeing here in Zechariah and to drag you to court and say, they're a Christian and they're looking for evidence of how you've lived your life on the outside. Would there be enough evidence to convict you and I being Christians? Or to be, well, they go to that building once a week for an hour and a half and that must be good enough. Zechariah calls us to true and pure religion that is ex exhilarating as well as it's scary. It's God-honoring. It's fighting for what matters most and leaving behind what matters least. Knowing this, the two oracles, chapters 9 to the end of 14, that God will ultimately come out on top. God will ultimately come out on top. An oracle is a word of God through the mouth of a prophet. It's, it's man's the median, medium, God's the real messenger. And the two oracles, let me summarize them for you in this way. Uh, God will come out on top. The first oracle, uh, he will get the final word. 
We do all these things. We see the hope that we have and the promise of assurance. We, we dig into what God wants for our lives. We're not content with status quo or complacency. We do all these things knowing that God will come out on top and in the end, he will get the final word. Anyone here like the final word? I like to have the final word in my house, but guess who gets the final word over every house? God does. Here's a 9-1 to middle of 12 go. They, this is what it is. God's ultimately going to come and he's going to dominate. Be like the U.S. invading Canada. We can't have a chance. God's going to dominate. He's going to take out the false shepherds, the ones that rejected the true shepherd. And he's going to highlight the perfect shepherd, Jesus Christ. He's going to exalt the coming Prince of Peace, whom we know is Jesus Christ. He's going to regather his own dispersed people and show us his total control over all human history. God will shine forward the brightest as he ever has and ever will. Now, this portion here, chapters 9 and 10, are the most quoted, is the most quoted prophet in the Old Testament passion narratives and the largest number of messianic, in other words, about the Messiah, passages among the minor prophets. Here's why, because in this text, Zechariah pictures Christ in both his first coming, chapter 9, verse 9, and his second coming, chapter 9, 10 to 10, 12. And what he's truly trying to say is, Jesus is going to reign and he's going to get the final word. The last part of this, 12, 1 to 14, 21, he will finish his work. Not only will he get the final word, but he will finish his work, pointing to the coming of the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. You'll see in the last little bit here the oracles concerning the, the day of the Lord. Jesus will come, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, according to Zechariah's Savior, Judge, and ultimately as a righteous king, ruling his people from Jerusalem forever. He's going to come one more punch. Bam, knock out the, knock out the enemies. Israel's going to see its sin and repent. Fully and finally, a fountain is going to be opened up for the house of David. The inhabitants of Jerusalem will soak up living waters and finally be cleansed from sin, idolatry, and false prophets. There's going to be a faithful few, the remnant, the faithful few. They're going to emerge through the smoke. They're going to come and present themselves before the throne room of God to their living king. And the Lord Jesus Christ will become king of the earth. In that day. Zechariah envisions the day we long for. It's a day when God's kingdom will truly be consummated, where there's peace. The tabernacle is there, God in the center, holiness in the land, and all nations will come to Jerusalem to worship the King of Kings. Get this, all nations will come to Jerusalem to worship the King of Kings, the Lord of hosts, and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, the most joyful feast of the year, in perpetual reality. Ultimately, God will conquer. God will win. The message of Zechariah. Easy to preach. Sometimes hard to live, isn't it? Easy to believe for somebody else. Sometimes hard to believe for me and for my church. But here's the deal. God promised for every believer, that you will be his and he'll be yours to the day on this earth you meet him and then forever and eternity. God promised that he will build this church. Matthew 16, we started this. He will build this church and the gates of hell will not prevail over his church. And that's our hope and assurance. Your hope has never been in a pastor. I've told you that year after year after year after year after year. Uh, my hope has never been in the church. My, our hope is in Jesus Christ, the, the, the king of the universe being faithful to his promises.
forgiving us of our sins, giving us the Holy Spirit to accomplish all that he's called us to accomplish and to be faithful until the very end, the day that we meet him, to spend eternity with him, with this fountain, with this peace, with the presence of our God that is the ultimate reality of every believer. And this is why we keep going. This is why we get past ourselves. This is why we keep pursuing Jesus when it gets hard. This is why when it's confusing, we keep going. This is why we never give up because God's spirit won't let us give up. And God keeps giving us the vision of what's ahead. This is why we don't despair. This is why we don't fall into angst and anxiety. And even though the world may crumble around us, this is why we keep going because God promises in the end, he will win. We just got to hold on for the ride. Knowing that as we hold on, and we start white knuckling it, guess what? As we hold on to him, he brings his hands around and he holds on to us. And he'll ultimately bring us all the way home. Amen. He'll do that in our lives and in this church. God remembers. He remembers his people. The Lord's name is renowned. He does it for the fame of his name. Can I encourage you, church? He's going to do it. Amen. He's going to do it. He's not filled us yet. He's not going to start now. Amen. He's going to do it. Let me pray. God, I have not done justice at all to Zechariah the prophet and what you recorded through his life and his words. Father, I pray today simply this, that you would help us cause us, stir us to look beyond this life, look beyond this world right now, our circumstances, and look to God, the author of this life, look to Jesus Christ, the Savior of our souls, the one who has rescued us from darkness and taken us to light, the one who's given us, taken us from death and given us life, the one who's going to use us now in this world and promises us that as we follow him, as we love him, as we serve him, the best way we know how is grace will cover us and he'll accomplish great and mighty things through our lives, ultimately for the glory of his own name. Thank you God for your reality. Thank you God for your son. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that's going to make all this happen. Father we can't do any of these things apart from the Holy Spirit yet you left us the perfect gift in the Holy Spirit. Encourage us to strengthen us to pull us, to push us, to prod us to pry us forward for the things of Jesus. God, I pray earnestly and fervently for this church. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to serve for nine years in this place, to get to know the people here, to see you at work. God, I can't even imagine, I couldn't even imagine at the beginning of this what you were going to do. We prayed, we prayed, we prayed, and you answered, you answered, you answered. You've built your church. You've laid a foundation, but this isn't it, God. There's so much more to come. This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. God, would you stir up the church to pray and pray and pray and even pray more than we prayed at the beginning, to, to long for more, God, to be more all in than we've ever been in before, to, to, to be determined, God, that if this life is going to count, this life's going to count for one thing, it's the name of Jesus Christ in my life, in this church, in this region. Oh, God, would you pour out your spirit again? More, God, I pray. Pour out your spirit again for all that's to come. Thank you for what's behind, but God, may we not live there. May we not stay there, God. May we look forward. May we look forward to a greater glory being revealed to us 
than what you've already given. To more life transformation in my own heart, our own hearts. To more impact of this church inside the walls and outside in our community as we live for Jesus. More God longing for revival. More God for what you have purposed and planned for your people here in this church in Niagara. God, I pray for the new pastor that's going to come. God, I pray that you'd anoint his being, God, that you would unite their hearts with this church. God, I pray you'd give him power and strength, give him vision and courage. Allow him, Lord, to lead as you have led so faithfully here. Allow him to lead in the same spirit, Lord, of prayer, the same spirit of speaking the word of God. Lord, we love you. We're thankful here for all that you've done. Thankful for our friends and our family who we love so dearly. We're thankful most of all for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We said from the beginning, it's about Jesus. We said at the end, God, would you, above everything else, exalt the name of your Son. Alone, God. Alone. In this place and community. Lead us on, God. Lead us on. In Jesus' name, amen.